I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture to Romans chapter 8. The title of my sermon this morning is Being Conformed to the Image of the Son. And that is found in verse 29. However, I will be reading from verse 18 through uh, verse 30. From Romans chapter 8. Here once again the very Word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great salvation which was wrought by your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And Father, we also acknowledge that you have predestined us to be conformed to his image. And so, Father, we pray that we would embrace that work that you're doing in our lives with thanksgiving. That we would not live out our lives in grumbling and complaining about your will, but rather we would hold on to it with both hands, embrace it from our hearts, and trust you for the increase. For you have been gracious and merciful, slow to anger with us and abounding in mercy. You've called us out of darkness into the marvelous light of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. You've set our faith on a solid rock. You've given us promises that endure for eternity. And we are your covenant people. So Father, help us to be good covenant children in your midst and before your face. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, today I would like to, uh, to, for us to focus our attention on the phrase that appears in Romans 8.29, where the Apostle Paul writes, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, saying that of us who have been called to His side 
by faith. Each day when we take breath, each moment that we live, those breaths, those moments have been predestined that we might be conformed to the image of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Seldom do we give thought to that. And yet, that's what we've been predestined to. This is a very profound thought. Consider it again. For every man and woman who is a Christian, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. We will be conformed to His image. It's been predestined by the hand of the Sovereign God. From moment to moment, the Almighty God of the universe is working all things together for our good to conform us to His Son's image. My, that's an incredible purpose. And yet God is doing that on our behalf. He has chosen for us to be conformed to that image. Now this profound declaration by the Apostle Paul encapsulates so many of the doctrines that we hold so very dear. First, the reality of a transcendent God who sovereignly governs all things. That is presupposed in this statement that God predestines us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Secondly, the reality of the God-man is taught here. The second person of the Trinity who has revealed to mankind the living God in bodily form. A third doctrine that is presupposed here is that God is not, as the deists would have us believe, that God is beyond reach and impersonal in the affairs of men. No. Paul asserts that God is profoundly personal and actively guiding all things for our benefit to the end that we are being conformed to the image of His Son. And these are but a few of the presuppositions contained in Paul's statement that was directed by the Holy Spirit in our passage. All of this harkens back to our confession of faith today from Heidelberg Catechism question one with the answer that speaks to all of those doctrines as well. Well, why is this so important for us today? After all, we do live in interesting times. And you, that probably brings to mind the, the uh, parable, the Chinese parable about the curse of living in interesting times. But we do live in interesting times. It is my desire over the next several weeks to challenge us to be more deliberate about being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ with regard to our Christian worldview. This means that we will have to contrast the Christian worldview to the prevailing worldviews of our times. It will also mean that we'll have to consider carefully how God has structured reality and how we ought to portray that in our lives, our homes, our workplaces, and our society. Thus, over at least the next three weeks, I'll be preaching on what it means to have a Christian worldview. This series will be interrupted on December 21st with a sermon on Advent, because that's uh, Christmas uh, Sunday, so we will have an Advent sermon that day. But it is my hope that as a result of this sermon series, we'll all become more diligent to be conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus. It is my hope that we will willingly embrace that which we have been predestined to become, image bearers of Christ. And it is my hope that we will actively embrace what God has wisely 
and graciously predestined us to become. Again, image bears of Christ. Well, the outline of this series is as follows. First, it's important to consider the foundations of our worldview from a biblical perspective. We will then contrast the Christian worldview to the prevailing worldview of the day, which I believe to, uh, is the postmodern worldview. Um, though I believe postmodernism is the prevalent worldview of the day, uh, I also believe that it may not be the most prominent in the next generation. And there are reasons for this. We'll touch on those when I preach on that. Uh, at least two of those reasons are because of the fluid nature of the underpinnings of postmodernism and also its elastic assertions about truth. And I have, because of those two things in particular, I have my doubts that postmodernism has any longevity to its life cycle. I doubt that it will last long. I could be wrong. You never know. Uh, God knows, and He's careful to do His holy will throughout the midst of this. Well, the last section that I want to teach on in these sermon, this sermon series is the Christian worldview confronting and ultimately overthrowing the prevailing worldviews of men. And so those three topics will be the thrust of the series. To consider the foundations of our Christian worldview, which is the first area that I want to touch on, we must begin with our first and most basic presupposition. The first and most basic presupposition for the Christian is the existence of the God of the Bible. That is our most basic presupposition. Interestingly, not only do we as Christians begin here, all men begin with the same presupposition according to the Bible. There is, however, a very distinct and clear difference between how the Christian views the God of the Bible and the non-Christian. It is in this difference that the non-Christian asserts there is no God, and certainly not, if there is a God, certainly not the one of the Bible. In Romans chapter 1, we read Paul's description of this very phenomenon. Now this is that all men believe in the same first presupposition. And that is the God of the Bible. Paul writes this beginning in Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then jumping down to verse 28. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Brother, Paul writes here that all men know there is a God, the God of the Bible. They know His invisible attributes, even His Godhead, yet they suppress that truth and unrighteousness in their own minds. Those who do not bow their knee to His Son, Jesus Christ. And God gives them over, gives them over to their debauchery. All men begin with the very same presupposition, the God of the Bible. The difference is that the believer accepts and embraces the biblical description of God in the Bible, while the unbeliever suppresses that truth and unrighteousness. For those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as I said before, God gives them over to their debased minds. Verse 28. So all men begin at the very same presupposition. The difference being that those that those uh, who do not know God as the God of salvation and suppress that truth and unrighteousness then assert that there's no God at all. Their debased activities would have them come under the scrutiny of God if they asserted otherwise. So they must deny the existence of God. But it is accurate to assert that all men believe in God, however some men refuse to admit it, despite their claim to the contrary. This is a peculiarity about presuppositions. In our own thinking, we always want to search for the origins of a thing, whether it's the origin of a man, the origins of thought, the origins of creation. A presupposition is unique in that it has no origin. It is the beginning point. And for the Christian, we begin with the being that has no origin, God. He is the originator because He is the eternal being without beginning or end. He is our presupposition. And we embrace Him as He has revealed Himself to us. The unbeliever suppresses this truth and unrighteousness and begins somewhere else. Typically, the unbeliever begins with autonomous man. Interesting phrase. The word autonomous come from, comes from two Greek words, auto and nomos. The word auto in Greek means independent or individual. And the word nomos means law. Therefore, the word autonomous means independent or individual law. So the autonomous individual is a, quote, law unto himself. And such is the case with the unregenerate man. 
From the basic presupposition, man has sought to answer all other questions of importance in light of the first and basic presupposition. For our purposes, we shall consider four of the most basic important questions that arise in the minds of men. First, what is the nature of God? Second, what is the nature of man? Third, what is the truth? And how do I know what is true? And then fourth and lastly, what is the purpose of man? Many more basic questions could be considered, but we'll limit ourselves to these four. These four questions will be the subject of next week's sermon. Well, I want us to bring this, bring this to some kind of application today, which is difficult because it's been a very ethereal kind of sermon thus far. But let me assure you, there is very, very basic practical applications for this. Now, today's sermon is philosophical in nature. The sermons and, and the sermons of the coming weeks will be likewise. Yet there is a very practical as, aspect to the sermon, these sermons and their importance. As I have said many times to our congregation, our orthodoxy produces orthopraxy. In plain English, that means right belief becomes right practice. But it begins with right belief. As we become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our minds are renewed. Paul wrote later in Romans, in the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Rather, to become conformed to the image of Christ requires sacrificing oneself to the living God, who is full of grace and abounding in mercy. This is our reasonable service, as Paul calls it. In Romans 1, Paul calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ in the very first verse. Paul thought that was reasonable service as well. This brings me to another point of the practicality of how we should approach become, becoming image bearers of Jesus Christ. We as Americans chafe at the notion of slavery. We can conceive of slavery as always being evil. That's often the thoughts that we have in our own minds. Slavery is always evil. The Bible does not look at slavery that way. The Bible does condemn, condemn chattel slavery. What do I mean by chattel slavery? Chattel means to own something, like a piece of furniture, or an automobile, or a hammer. It has purpose, but the ownership of that can be described as chattel. We're not to own other people like chattel, like we own a hammer or a piece of furniture, because people bear the image of God. So the Bible rightly condemns chattel slavery. On the other hand, the Bible commends commends indentured servitude 
which is a different kind of slavery than chattel slavery. What is indentured servitude? Well, indentured servitude is when a man owes a debt that he cannot pay. It is so great that he can't possibly pay it. It's beyond his means. So he seeks help from another. And he pledges himself, himself and all his worldly possessions to that person who will deliver him from that debt. That's described very carefully in the book of Deuteronomy. If I'm not mistaken, it's chapter 17. I could be wrong in the chapter, but I'm close. That's indentured servitude. Now, Paul, at the beginning of the book of Romans, says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And in the Greek, the Greek word there used is also used in the Septuagint as indentured servant. He's indebted to this person. Paul is indebted to Jesus Christ. For what purpose? Did he owe him some silver or gold? No, Paul owed Jesus Christ his life. Paul was a murderer. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. It is very likely that he stood by and held the coats of those who stoned Stephen in the early chapters of Acts. He was complicit. He sought to kill Christians when God brought him to salvation. And when he turned to God, he became a bondservant because Christ had paid a debt he could never pay himself. He was an indentured servant. And he called himself that at the beginning of the book of Romans. To become a bondservant to another is to be relieved of a debt that you cannot pay. Paul gladly calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid a debt on behalf of Paul that Paul could never have paid. Has Jesus paid that debt for you? Brethren, slavery is inevitable. That may be hard to hear. But we're all enslaved to something. We are all slaves. We're either slaves to sin and the suppression of God in unrighteousness, or we are bond slaves to Jesus Christ who paid our debt for us. We can't escape slavery. We're all slaves. We're either slaves to our sin or slaves to the one who saved us from our sins, Jesus Christ. I gladly wear the shackles that tie me to my Savior. I gladly wear those shackles. I would put them on again. Because I'm shackled to the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Why not be bound to Him? Who else would I want to be bound to? In Him there is surpassing joy that has freed me from sin and death. I gladly bear the shackles of a slave because my owner is my Savior. Brethren, to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ 
is to embrace truth, righteousness, to trust God for the increase, to know salvation and its fullness, the joy that it brings, the peace of the heart. All of those things far surpass anything the world can give us. So my encouragement to you today is this. Bear your shackles with gladness. Bear them with gladness. Be that bondservant that brings honor to the name of Jesus Christ as Paul did. And do it with thanksgiving in your hearts. As I said before, it's my hope in the coming weeks that our Christian worldview will become plain to us. Understandable. That we'll embrace it with our hearts. And truly will become the salt of the earth through it. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the salvation that you have brought in Jesus Christ on our behalf. Father, absent the debt that was paid by him, we would remain in our trespasses and sins, bound to those things as the unbelievers are. Father, there may be some in our midst today who have heard these words, who are still bound in their sin. I pray today would be their day of salvation. That they would throw off the shackles of sin and be bound to the one who gives them relief, who gives them true liberty, who brings hope and peace to the mind and heart, who promises to redeem them for eternity. None other than Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, work in the hearts of those who do not trust in your Son Christ for salvation. Work in their hearts that today would be the day of repentance. That they would turn and trust Him alone for their salvation. And be lifted out of their sins. And set on a solid rock. Father, you have taught us to bring our petitions to you in prayer. Asking on behalf of others for their needs and making intercession for them as Christ intercedes for us at your right hand. Truly, Lord, prayer and petitioning you is mimicking what Christ does at your right hand. So in that way today, Lord, we bear his image. Father, we pray that you would make provisions for our pregnant mothers in our congregation, for Heather and Lydia. We thank you for these great gifts that you brought to them in their wombs, to their families, to our church. We pray for these covenant ch children as they grow, that you will strengthen them, that they would get sufficient nourishment and rest through their formative days. And Father, when they come to birth, we thank you and give thanks that you preserve each of us in times of trial. And so we pray, Father, that you would preserve both mother and child on that day of birth. Father, we pray for those who have lost loved ones, I think particularly of Leave Easy, our dear brother and co-worker in this presbytery. 
Father, I pray that you would comfort he and his family, his immediate family and extended family at the passing of his mother this week. Father, as he sent out an email to, uh, to many of the men in the presbytery, we give thanks for his testimony, that he gives thanks to you that his mother believed in your son Jesus Christ and is in your near presence even now. Father, you call us to that hope. That is the unseen hope that Paul wrote about in our text today, Romans 8. And so, Father, help us to embrace that unseen hope as well. Giving thanks that even when we put off this carnal body, we will put on a body like your son's, a heavenly body. And we will all the more bear his image in that day. Father, in this Advent season, help us to be thankful for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, who put off his glory to put on a human body, to be made in the likeness of men, that he might provide salvation and pay the debts that we could not pay before your throne. Father, you rose, raised him from the dead the third day that He might be the first fruits of our salvation. And so, Father, we, in Him, trust in You for the increase that one day we too will put on a resurrected body and we live eternally with You. Father, for that we are grateful. And we thank You for His sacrifice on our behalf. Help us in this season to remember these things and not be distracted by the temptations of the world. Father, we pray for those in authority over us, for the civil magistrates who you've raised up. The Scriptures teach us, Lord, that you raise up kings and you put them down. And Father, we should look upon those who govern us as ministers of yours, as you've taught us from your word. Father, we pray that you'd give us men who would bow their knee to your Son, Jesus Christ, to govern us both in the civil realm and in the ecclesiastical realm. And we pray, Father, that they would be faithful men to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly before you. Father, there are those who govern us who do not bow their knee to you. And so, Father, we pray for their salvation, asking that your Spirit would convict them of their sin, that they would throw off the shackles of sin and death and put on Christ, bondservants, to Him. But should they refuse, Lord, we pray that Your sovereign hand would remove them, that Your people might live quiet, peaceable lives in this creation that You've made for us. Father, we commit these things to Your care, for You care for us. And now we join our voices together in the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples, praying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.